One of the most fun things I get to do as the producer and host of this podcast is to share with all of you when we are finally covering a book that's been requested many times by many listeners. And that is exactly what I get to do today. Episode 273 is all about Margaret Peterson Haddix's Among the Hidden, and I know there are a lot of you who are very excited about this news. Among the Hidden was published in 1998. While it was originally intended to be a standalone novel, it would become the first installment in Haddix's Shadow Children series, a set of seven books about a dystopian world in which a totalitarian government has taken drastic measures to manage what they claim is an overpopulation problem. In Among the Hidden, we learn about these drastic measures from the perspective of main character Luke, a young boy forced to spend his life in hiding because of his status as an illegal third child. For the first time ever, Luke meets another third child, a young activist named Jen, who is hell-bent on effecting major change in their society by networking with other third children and encouraging them to be visible and demand the freedoms they deserve. Among the Hidden feels creepily relevant for contemporary readers, which we talk about in today's episode. We also talk about the ways in which the book discusses privilege, elitism, class, propaganda, different approaches to activism, and violent governments. We wonder about potential subtle messaging around abortion and reproductive rights. We rave about Among the Hidden's narrative structure and how well Margaret Peterson Haddix sets readers up for the second installment. We also discuss this book in the broader context of dystopian novels and chat about how wildly my guest's recent reading experience differed from her memories of it from childhood. This week, we have the pleasure of having Claire on on the show. Claire grew up in Seoul, Korea and still considers it her home. She moved to New York to attend university and now lives in Long Island City with her husband, daughter, and their dog, Dante. Claire writes about transcultural experiences and the traditions, values, and legacies that shape who we are. I Guess I Live Here Now is her debut novel. Follow her on Instagram at Claire On. While you're tapping follow over on Instagram, make sure you're following SSR too. We are on the gram at SSRpod. Find us using the same handle on Twitter and on Facebook by searching the SSR podcast or the SSR book club. We have lots of fun year-end stuff happening at the moment, all of which you can keep up with in those places. Make sure you vote in our best of 2023 listener's choice bracket at the link in my bio. The guest from the winning episode will get to choose a cause or organization to which SSR will make a donation to finish out the year. Wrapping things up for the year also means that I'm winding down before my maternity leave. I'll be taking a few months off from the podcast at the beginning of 2024 as we welcome a new family member. I won't be dropping new book episodes for a bit, but you will still be able to access lots of fun content as a member of the SSR Patreon community. Even during maternity leave, I'll be recording bonus episodes and reading recap videos, sharing monthly newsletters, and running our SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club. Plus, the contributions I receive from patrons during this time will be more important than ever. I'm sure I will be anxious to return to my usual recording schedule after maternity leave, but I will also need to know that doing so is going to make sense practically for my family. All that to say, I would love for you to consider becoming a patron. Think of it as a holiday gift to yourself. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I would also so appreciate your support for the podcast in the form of five-star ratings and reviews and social media shares. I've heard from many book-loving moms that I should plan to really lean into audiobooks in the newborn days that are coming my way. When it comes to audiobooks, I am a big fan of Libro FM, 
and I am sure I will be even more of a fan when baby K arrives. If you are new to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, the most important thing to know is that it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. If you're an Audible listener, I encourage you to give it a try. Since the audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you find on Amazon. Use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm also has great gifting options for all of the book lovers on your holiday list. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Claire. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for our conversation. I am too. I'm thrilled to be discussing Margaret Peterson Haddix's Among the Hidden. And I have to tell you, this is a book that has been requested by many listeners over the years. And so I know we have a lot of very excited listeners. Oh, awesome. Wow. It's like such a specific book to be requested. And I'm surprised no one picked it earlier. I know. I think I've offered it to a couple of other guests and nobody has, nobody's been interested. I don't know that I read it when I was a kid, although I was a huge fan of her book, Running Out of Time, which we covered really early on in the show. I can link that in the show notes for listeners who are interested. I don't think that I read this, but I have to tell you, I loved it. It kind of blew my mind. Before we get there, though, I want to hear from you about why you chose this book and if you have any memories of it or history with reading it when you were a kid. Sure. So when you sent me the book suggestions, right, and it it all sort of hit, struck a chord with me. And I was like, wow, like I remember these books. It's interesting because as a writer, I'm thinking so much about the story. But it was funny that I couldn't actually remember the plot of these books, of the suggestions that you sent. It was more like the feeling that I remember. And I was like, if you ask me what is Among the Hidden about, I would not know what to tell you. But when I saw Among the Hidden, I was like, that book affected me. And I couldn't remember what it was, but I knew that it it did affect me, which is why I chose it. And I, I read the summary or like the, the synopsis and I was like, oh my God, like I vaguely remember the Shadow Children series. And so I just really wanted to revisit it because I I know, I remember that it had an effect on me in a way that was more than just like, oh, that was fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, I love that feeling and I've come across that a couple of times in the life of the podcast where I know that there's a book that I'm really looking forward to revisiting and I'm not sure why. I just know that it's something that stuck with me for a really long time. 
So I totally resonate with what you're saying where you're like, I don't know what this is about. I don't know why I loved it so much. I just know that it mattered to me in some way or it affected me. And now I need to see what it's like to read it as an adult. Right. That's yeah, that's precisely how I felt. So this book came out in 1998. I would have been eight. Again, I'm not sure like how this missed me because I was such a library kid and I read everything. So (laughs) I don't know, like somebody really missed the boat on like (laughs) not recommending it. your librarian just kidding yeah seriously miss talarico uh one of the kutz <laughs> elementary school library if you do happen to be listening that was a big misstep on your part <laughs> because i i was obsessed with running out of time mm, same so i don't know how i just like never found this book but like let's just let's just jump right in and talk about the setup because Margaret Peterson Haddix brings us right in. Like there's really no downtime. Right. We meet Luke, the main character. He's 12 and he lives this very solitary life. He can't go anywhere. He has to stay home at all times and he lives a very different life than his siblings and his parents. And things get even more grim because Now he can't even go outside on his own property because this like mysterious government that is talked about in like a very creepy tone, especially at the beginning, um, has bought his parents land. And so now he doesn't even have like the freedom to run around. When you started the book again as an adult, Claire, like what were your first impressions? Did you start to, to remember more about what it was that drew you in the first time? I think it was really seeing the world through Luke's perspective like that that was very transformative for me and I think I remember reading it as a kid and I just didn't think twice about it it felt so fictional right it felt so far off Um, and I think as a kid you're not really aware of the problems of the world not to say there are the equivalent of shadow children but there are children who yes are are starving children who feel unseen children who just have this identity that they can't quite get to live out, right? Based on family circumstances and oppression and, and our government, unfortunately, right? And so I think reading as an adult was a lot more heart wrenching than reading as a kid, because as a kid, I think I was acutely aware that it's a fictional novel. Interesting. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. And when I, I was reading a little bit about what inspired Margaret Peterson Haddix to write this book, and she's talked about how the genesis of it was these conversations she had with her husband when they were talking about whether or not they should have a third child. They had two kids and they couldn't decide if they wanted to grow their family. And the conversation somehow evolved into a larger discussion about the planet's resources and overpopulation and whether or not they wanted to be part of that like problem. Um, And look, that's like a conversation that's like much too big for you and I to have, of course, and it's not for us to solve. And then they also got to talking about China's one child policy. And so all of those things kind of came together to inspire Among the Hidden and what would become the Shadow Children series. And I, I just... I don't think that if I'd read this as a kid, I would have understood any of that context, obviously, because it wouldn't have been interesting to me that this grown woman was talking to her husband about whether or not they should have a third child. And while I was vaguely aware of the one child policy at that time, like understanding what inspired these books as an adult is like so much more meaningful to me. Like as a kid, I just would, like you're saying, you know, it, it just felt like this fictional world. 
And so to understand that there were these very real world inspirations for it, it made it that much more compelling. I think also as a kid, I, f- I find that a lot of middle grade novels center the protagonist learning to be brave, right? Yeah. And that's just a huge theme among middle school children. You see that in Coraline, which is like my childhood favorite book, Yeah. right? It's all about the protagonist sort of being in fear and being driven by fear and sort of overcoming their own cowardice um, for the greater good, whatever that may be for their family, for the world, for for Jen in this case. And to me, I was like, oh, yeah, I think as a as a middle schooler, that's what you're drawn to. You're not really drawn to this concept of like, what is this government doing? You're more like, oh, wow, like Luke, as someone who is my age, like he's being so brave, like that will give me hope to be brave as well. And I think that's sort of what I drew from it. Whereas when I read it now as an adult, I was like, wow, this government sucks. And let's overthrow this like piece of crap. (laughs) Right. You're more focused on like the bigger system than on the character, him or herself. Mm -hmm. I also was struck by the fact, and we'll talk more about like the details of this, of this dystopian world in a minute, but like Every time I read a book that's dystopian from, quite frankly, like pre-Hunger Games era, I'm reminded of the fact that like the early aughts did not invent dystopia. Like I think it's so easy or at least my my memory of it as somebody who was a teenager when I feel like dystopian books really blew up is that like, oh, we invented this new genre. But over the course of doing this podcast, I've come back to books like The Giver and now Among the Hidden, like Mm-hmm. There were these really rich dystopian universes being built long before Suzanne Collins did it. And it's just a nice reminder that like if you do a little digging and you are somebody that was really compelled by dystopian books when you were a teenager, there's a lot of other things to discover. Right, right, totally. Yeah, I, I feel like there was an upward trend for sure. But when we were younger, you read these dystopian books and I don't think you register that they're dystopian <laughs> I didn't know the word dystopian when I was a kid. I mean, I don't think I knew it until probably Hunger Games and people were starting to throw it around. And then when I started working in publishing in my early 20s, that was a big buzzword. But I was like, oh, this is pretty hardcore dystopia. So let me go ahead. I'm going to read an excerpt from the book that sort of explains Luke's situation and why he finds himself in this very isolated life. There was a law against Luke, not him personally, everyone like him, kids who were born after their parents had already had two babies. Actually, Luke didn't know if there was anyone else like him. He wasn't supposed to exist. Maybe he was the only one. They did things to women after they had their second baby, so they wouldn't have any more. And if there was a mistake and a woman got pregnant anyway, she was supposed to get rid of it. Okay, I have a lot to say about that. Especially in our modern day right now. <laughs> I know. I I really was looking to see if there was anything out there, like in terms of commentary from the author about Roe v. Wade or about just like reproductive mm-hmm. freedom, because I was like, how can I read this and not wonder if she was trying to make any sort of a statement? And I, right. I, was, I was struggling to do the mental gymnastics to like figure out what I felt like she was trying to say. I mean, I I guess it seemed to me maybe most broadly that she just wants to be like, people should be able to choose the size of their families. And that sort of naturally means that like women should have control of their reproductive choices. But it kind of kept getting confused in my head. But there were all these references to like, the government will do things to your body after you have your second baby, and then you'll be forced to get rid of it. And, And I think there were a couple of moments where it seemed like they meant adoption, 
But I don't know. It was like, it was very juicy to me and I kind of wanted more. And I guess that's like the adult reader in me. Right, right, right. That's how I felt too. When I was reading that specific line, I was like, what do you mean they do something to their bodies? Like, that doesn't sound like something a government can do. And also, I mean, clearly they didn't successfully do it. Right. Because Luke is born. So I did want a little bit more detail on that, but there is a bit of suspension of disbelief when you are writing for middle schoolers, right? Because you're not going to be like, no middle school kid is going to be wondering about like, what is it exactly that they do to a woman's reproductive system that prevents them from having a kid, right? Like there might be a few kids that may question that, but especially given the context in which this book was written, which was during a much more like, even then a conservative society where... I don't think people were as actively pushing for liberal rights at the time. And in general, women were still in a stereotype of um, living a quieter life and and sort of blending into society. Um, I feel like this wouldn't have come up in the same way it would come up if this book was written right now. Yeah, and I I wonder if kids coming to this book in 2023, even as middle schoolers, would push back on some of that suspension of disbelief that we were able to achieve in the 90s because they are more informed and there's just like more information out there. Right. But yeah, I was like, I need more information because we get a little bit more later on um, when Luke meets another shadow child named Jen, who's from a much different kind of family. She's from like a privileged family. Her dad works for the government. And unlike Luke, she was like planned, like her parents wanted to have another child But my understanding was that her mom was able to get around whatever this like procedure was because her parents had the money to like bribe whoever would have been responsible for making that decision for her. So I I got that where I was like, okay, if you're privileged in this society, you can basically do whatever you want. And we get that from Jen. So I was like, okay, get that. But clearly something was amiss with Luke's family, which is why he exists as the third of three brothers. I wanted to take a minute to talk about his older brothers, Matt and Mark. Um, Matt, Mark, and Luke. Such, like, classic names. Very biblical. My husband is from a family where it's Nick, Matt, and John. So I was like, okay, this sounds, I get this, in the 90s. And we sort of got to know Matt and Mark a little bit. But as an adult, I found myself having a lot of empathy for them because there are things that they're missing out on in life because of Luke. And I also felt like they were such jerks to him sometimes. And I felt, of course, more for Luke as our protagonist because he's left out of a lot of the things that they get to do. But we also sort of get snapshots of what their life was like when they were growing up. And they had to change the way that they would have operated because they are being at least a little bit considerate of their little brother's complicated existence they have to take on more chores like there's almost a survivor's guilt corollary going on where like they clearly are living differently than they would have otherwise because they're being sensitive to Luke did you have any thoughts about them I did feel that they were definitely jerks at times but they're also kids right and so I'm like yeah if it's hard it's hard to be considerate of another kid even if he is your brother, when you are that young, right? Because it talks about like the birthday parties that they had or or rather that they couldn't have because people can't be over at their place and how, how much of a risk it is. And as an adult, you're kind of like, okay, if that's like your biggest problem, you have a good life, seven-year-olds, 
Matt or Mark, like it's better than being in an attic your whole life. However, when you are, you know, seven years old, you don't have the emotional ability and the emotional acumen to be like, oh, but I'm in a better situation. And so even though it sucks that I can't have a birthday party, I understand that I'm still privileged because I get to exist, right? right? Like I think Margaret Peters Haddock did an amazing job sort of with the brothers complaining about chores. Like that was a that was a great example. Like, well, he's still just as living as we are. He has a body. He can move. He has a physical capability of doing chores. It's just that this government, air quotes, won't let him. Like what the heck? So I, I did think that it definitely grew some sympathy in me. However, I think I would have loved to see more, mm. more of their dynamic. It seems like it was a very like older society book, right? Like I would say modern, modern middle grade books, there's a lot more there. These stories are a lot more relational heavy. Correct. Yeah, I agree. But, but the books from, you know, our childhood are not so much that it's a lot more like plot driven and it just sort of hones in on a person's life as opposed to sort of all the other relationships that circle the protagonist. So I was feeling a little bit insufficient in in how much of Matt and Mark I got to know. I think that's really well said. I think if this book were written today, we would have gotten more into the details of the sibling relationships, of the parent relationships. We would have seen more of the dad who is a really complicated, kind of scary figure. We definitely would have seen more of the mom who is Luke's really like closest ally, which isn't saying much because she doesn't have that many options to be his advocate. So I I also was hungry for that. I mean, I'm a reader who always reads for like character and relationship first. So as much as I enjoy a little action and plotting, I'm always going to want more family drama. So to be clear, the reason that Luke has to give up even more of his chores to his brothers, the reason that he is now even more restricted with how much he can move about the inside of his home is because his parents are increasingly paranoid that if anybody so much as sees him through a window... They will be potentially killed. There's this population police that they referred to all the time that seems to be making constant rounds looking for these third children. And so now like Luke can't even sit at the kitchen table with his family and have dinner. He has to sit on the stairs and he can't even participate. It's so sad. Like those scenes where he's trying to hear what they're saying Oh my God. And he can't, he's like, oh, I didn't realize how quiet my mother's voice was. I'm like, it wrecked me. Oh, it's so sad. Like, I do think he has this special attachment to his mother. I mean, he is the youngest, which I think like there's that trope of like the mom's youngest son is always Mm -hmm. pampered, which he is. The baby. Yeah. And she also like clearly feels some sense of guilt for like bringing him into the world, which is a very complicated thing to say because she loves him. And I, in the margin of my book, I think I counted four times when I was going through my notes today. I think I wrote four times, what is the end game for Luke? Because his parents are putting more and more restrictions on him because of these like changing circumstances with their property lines and like the government is getting more strict. So he now is like in an attic all the time. It almost reminded me of Flowers in the Attic a little bit, which is dark. But I I kept thinking like, what do his parents foresee Luke's future looking like? What's the, what's the goal? 
and they don't have a plan. Like, was that something that you kept coming back to also? I did. And I know that the mom did mention like, oh, like, like basically she hinges on this hope that it won't be that way forever. Right. And that's, that's sort of what she's hoping on. But um, living in this world, right, like we can't trust the government to do anything for us and to work in favor of people, because this is a clear example of profit over people. But that's all the mom has is that is this fake hope that population control will sort of alleviate. And at some point, they can be like, okay, great, like, we have this, like, third son, who's probably going to be 15 years old by then. Right. So to me, it was, it posed a really difficult and painful question of, does this mom have guilt in her heart for bringing him in because she can't, like, she had him selfishly, mm-hmm. right? Like, he's 12, right? He's 12 years old in the book. He's 12 years old. He he's he has all these restrictions. He gets, like, restless and cabin fever. And it's just sort of like, what is that? Like, that's not living. And in a very bleaker kind of modern-day perspective I was like it it felt very similar to someone who wants to have a kid but can't really give the kid a life that he or she deserves like just basic basic human rights right like we don't need a four poster bed that Jen has but this mom can't even do basic things for for her son so why why did you have a kid you know that's how it sort of made me feel right which brings us back to that like unavoidable question that I think you and I both were like craving a little bit more from the author on like where are the interviews where Margaret Peterson Haddix is talking about people who find themselves in those very real heartbreaking situations because those are those are choices that people face for a variety of reasons again like there's a suspension of disbelief like we don't know if Luke's mom had options that she could have availed herself of like if when she got pregnant, maybe she felt like it wasn't the right choice to have a third son. We don't know if there was a choice that she could have made otherwise. We don't know if she had access to those decisions. Um, and I think in 2023, like that's something that we would expect to understand a little bit better. But in 1998, that wasn't something that middle graders certainly were privy to. Yeah, like if this book was written today, there would be so much, so many questions of like, well, what is this government? Right. Like, please stop referring to government with a capital G yeah. and give us a T. Yeah, it's so creepy. Yeah, because Luke doesn't really even know anything about the government until he meets Jen, who illuminates so much of the circumstances of this world for him. He just kind of mm-hmm. like accepts at face value that the government runs things. The government has this weird rule about families only having two children the government has a population police that will come after his family if they find out that he exists. And also his family is very reliant on the government's rules when it comes to their livelihood because they're farmers. Right. It felt very uh, Margaret Atwood meets North Korea. Yeah, that's, I think, a very, that yes, those are great <laughs> comps. <laughs> Never thought I'd use North Korea as a comp on the podcast. But yeah, um, I wonder that's how... how <laughs> Margaret Patterson Haddix pitched it to her editors. Yes, Margaret Peterson Haddix, if you are listening, um, that is the comp I made it for you. Please give me credit. Thank you. Yeah, we we want you to give Claire credit. We also want to know where you stand on abortion rights. 
And we have some other questions. So if you could just send me an email, hellossrpod at gmail.com. I'd love to have you on. We can dig into all of these things. So there are all these other things happening now where like Luke's family is being hit with this heavy tax. And so his mom has to go to work in a factory. So now he's like even more alone during the day. Luke's life just like sucks. And the only thing that he can do is look out the window at this new housing development that's been built on the land where he used to be allowed to play. And it is a development that is, it's set up for the elites. Again, we have another like capital letter, capital E elites. Mm -hmm. Right. And they are, or no, it's not the barons, the barons, uh, capital B barons, which is a lot of this was like confusing to me just world building wise because barons felt so old school I don't know it was weird but the barons are moving in and he's basically people watching which I appreciate as somebody who loves to people watch and he notices that there's this house where there are two sons that kind of like come and go every day as if they're going to school like normal kids parents come and go every day but then there's this room in the back of the house where a light is turning on midday and so he starts to be suspicious that there's somebody there maybe another third child Per that quote that I read earlier, like he doesn't know if there are other third children. And he finally gets brave enough to like sneak across his property and find out what's going on at this house. And we meet Jen. What were your first impressions of Jen, Claire? Oh, God, my first impressions of Jen. Very uh, spoiled rich kid, but then. Yeah. Almost like making fun of her lack of identity Mm. right like she's she feels very dark humor to me she's sort of like well what are what are they gonna do to me I'm already hidden like there's literally no punishment for me because there is nothing worse than living and hiding every day and so you know she spends her day sort of not caring if she makes mistakes not caring that she sets off the alarm doing whatever she wants in classic spoiled little girl fashion but I, I sort of admired it. It was a it was a good breath of fresh air after just the way Luke lives his life, which which to me is a lot more accurate of how I would imagine shadow children to be living. Yeah, I expect if we were to meet other shadow children in the future, and I like I I certainly haven't read any of the other books in the series, although I'm now interested in doing so. I feel like there are way more kids that are living Luke's life than Jen's life because Jen like talks about how her mom sneaks her out of the neighborhood to go shopping and like they have all this money so her parents can bribe officials to let them do whatever. She also has a fake ID that she uses uh, to leave the house. She she makes fun of her mom all the time for having these very traditionally feminine interests. She talks about how like the only reason that she was born was because her mom wanted to try for a third child so that they could hopefully have a daughter And so now her mom's like obviously not going to sit home with that daughter when she could be out shopping. So Jen just like functions in the world very differently. I thought that Jen was so Gen Z or like alpha to me because she's so into activism. She's a little bit of a conspiracy theorist because while she does like know more about the world than Luke, some of her... Some of her accusations about the government, like, aren't quite right. Like, she's bought into some propaganda that's, like, maybe not entirely correct. Mm -hmm. She's very plugged into chat rooms at a time when that doesn't really seem to be the norm. And she just has these really radical Taluk ideas. And I, I couldn't help thinking about, like, 
what a Jen TikTok or YouTube channel would be like. I mean, that girl would go crazy on social media today. Yeah, she would total. She would definitely be viral. She, yeah, she gave very Gen Z vibes, and I think it was it. I was thinking about that because to me, she sounded like a a very modern character. Mm. Like she was probably the only character in the book that I can read in 2023 and believe that this book was written in this past year yes whereas any other characters and their behaviors the way they speak the way they see the world it's very it is very you know in the 1990s kind of vibes 1990s and um and just a bit more traditional in that way so it it was very refreshing to have her very uh french revolution vibes absolutely i and i feel like in the 90s Jen was the one who kid readers would would come to and be like, why are you acting like this? This is so weird. You're so crazy. Whereas now I wonder if 2023 readers coming to the book would be like, Luke is so weird. Like, why is he being so quiet? Like, it's just so interesting how that kind of thing flips. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is a Jen, of course, but I, I do think that kids overall feel like they have more of a voice now. And somebody like Jen in 2023 would have theoretically gotten like her whole family killed because she would have started a podcast or like a creepy underground TikTok channel (laughs) as soon as she had access to the tools and the government would have been like, oh, you exist and you are not supposed to. So I don't know. I think she would probably feel very familiar to a lot of contemporary kids. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I really admire her, her courage. Yeah. Right. Like to be that. But I also, you know, I don't discount that a lot of the courage is tied to the privilege that she's had. Yes. Right? Like she doesn't have the fear of the government and the fear of the world the way that Luke has simply because she's seen her parents buy their way out of situations. So if you think that you can bribe anybody and anyone, of course, you're not going to be afraid of anything because you have this, you, you carry the ultimate thing that everyone wants, which is money and access. Uh, whereas Luke has nothing to offer if he gets caught. So it's just, you know, different playing fields. Absolutely. And this whole commentary on privilege is another thing that felt very mm-hmm. relatable and timely, I think, to us in the 21st century. Because as Luke and Jen get to know each other, Luke discovers that Jen has all of these relationships with other third children. They call themselves shadow children on chat rooms and they're planning this rally at what they call the president's house. I'm assuming that's the White House where all of these third children from like all over the country are going to get together, assemble, make their presence known and demand more rights, which in theory sounds great, but we know that that's probably a really terrible idea. And a lot of the relationship between Jen and Luke unfolds around these conversations about Jen pushing Luke to join her for the rally. And he is for a lot of reasons, reluctant to even talk about going to the rally. I had a couple of lines pulled out from these conversations just because I think it illustrates the positions that they've taken. Jen says, I don't care who gets called once we're there. Heck, I may call the population police myself. They're not going to do anything to a crowd of a thousand, especially not when lots of us are related to government officials. We'll make them listen to us. We're a revolution. She says, you've got to come, Luke, or you'll hate yourself for the rest of your life. When you don't have to hide anymore, even years from now, there will always be some small part of you whispering, I don't deserve this. I didn't fight for it. I'm not worth it. And you are, Luke. You are. You're smart and funny and nice, and you should be living life instead of being buried alive in that old house of yours. 
But Luke, on the other hand, thinks that's all the rally is anyhow, showing off. Hey, look, I'm a third child and I can go to the president's house and nobody will hurt me. He hoped someone shot her. That would show her, which is, of course, like a very intense, horrible thing to say. And then he he finally says to her in a way that I think really like sums up this privilege disparity. I still can't go. I'm sorry. It's something about having parents who are farmers, not lawyers, and not being a baron. It's people like you who change history. People like me, we just let things happen to us. Oh, He's like, you have the access. So it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, and you can afford to take the risk. Like, if something bad happens to you, your parents will probably be able to clean up the mess. And he doesn't have those options. Right. I mean, it was it was very reminiscent of the early months of COVID in March 2020 when crimes were skyrocketing and in the in the movement of anti-Asian hate, anti-Black hate, Black Lives Matter, in, in all of that, it was, there were all these news articles of if a Black teenager stole gum, right, like you get five years in prison. And then if a white kid is holding weed, he gets slap on the wrist. Right. And so it felt very reminiscent of, of that, of just like, I am, I am a descendant of the people who came before me. I am the son of a farmer, right? Like, there is not much I can do because what will happen to me will be infinitely worse than what could happen to you. So he lets her go. I'm trying to think like when I was reading, I think I thought he might change his mind because I'd never read it before. And I was like, he is going to have this moment of empowerment where he's going to be like, no, I can go. I'm going to leave home. Mm -hmm. And I at first was a little disappointed. I was like, oh, this is kind of lame because there would have been so much more story from a plotting perspective if we got to see him sneaking away from home with Jen and making this trip. Right. But of course, in the end, it ends up being much more interesting what does happen because he's waiting around for news about the rally, which should have been like a huge deal. He's sneaking the radio on, even though he's not supposed to listen to it during the day. And nobody's talking about this rally and he's getting suspicious. So he sneaks over to Jen's house. He tries to connect with their friends in the chat rooms. Nobody is responding. And Jen's dad, who he doesn't know at first is Jen's dad. He's just this like guy with a gun shows up and drops the like deeply upsetting news that Jen and all of the other shadow children who went to the rally were killed on site. Oh, devastating. Devastating. And again, reminiscent of movements that we have seen throughout history where like people think oh, if we show up in big numbers, maybe it will be fine. Nothing will happen to us if we show up with enough people around us. And this government is not above that, apparently. They are way below that. They will do whatever they have to do to address this problem of overpopulation, which we've learned is like really not that big of a problem. Right. Yeah, it was It was devastating. From I Yeah, I had also forgotten what the results of this book were. And so... I definitely assume from a storytelling perspective that Luke would go and join this movement. And, you know, you get the inkling that Jen is not going to last. That sort of brazen attitude won't get you super far, especially not if you're not the protagonist. But then I kind of thought maybe Luke goes and he, he slips away or he finds a way to stay hidden or, you know, something. But when he when he says, like, you know, thanks for coming, I still can't go. I I was I was shocked. I was like, where is your arc? <laughs> yeah, it didn't make sense narratively. Like I was like, okay, yes, of course, this is the beat where he says he's not going. 
But now the next beat will be that he changes his mind because he and Jen are friends and Jen's going to make a convincing argument and he's done all of this reading to understand better what's happening with the government. Mm -hmm, But yeah, mm -hmm. she just goes. Right. I I love that. I love that he didn't go because he is really holding his ground to understanding the reality of this harsh world that he lives in. And he's just like, you know, my heart is beating, racing across the backyard of our homes. There is no way in hell I'm going to survive showing up to the very oppressors who are keeping me hidden and, and make it out alive, right? He's he's so aware that that is his reality. And deep down, he knows. He knows that that's Jen's fate. But she just refuses to believe it because she hasn't had any scary moments the way that Luke has. He has parents who are afraid of the government. Whereas she has parents who sort of are part of the government and can control decisions, right? And so she doesn't have that fear. And and she has this flawed reality that because my dad is going to protect me, no one will touch me, which we learn is, is not the truth, unfortunately. Yeah, I think we all know and have met people like that at, of course, to like a much lesser degree, but like we have all met people whose family will potentially like bail them out of situations because they can in a way that our families wouldn't be able to. Right. And it's over something much smaller. So to to see her confidence that she is really untouchable because of her situation, I agree. It was it was empowering to see Luke hold his ground and to continue to say like, I know you think you get it. Like you're so smart. You know so many things about the world that I don't know, but like you don't get this and you don't really know what it's like to live my life. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do because kids especially often have to deal with an unfair level of peer pressure. Right. Yeah. I feel like kids also just, all of their emotions are so heightened, right? Like they, everyone, even she felt misunderstood because I know that Luke was saying, if I could even have half the life she has, like I would gladly hide in the, in the trunk of a car to then show up at a shopping mall and get to do whatever I want. I would gladly go out into town and do whatever it takes to stay hidden on the route there. But for her, like that's not enough. So kids, especially at that age, they just want a little bit more than what they have. Right. And so he can't understand why she wants more when she, she already has a great life. Right. And she can't understand how he's so unwilling to fight for change. Right. And I, I understand how they're coming from such different perspectives. Like he's like, you have a fake ID. Like if I could have a fake ID, that would be enough. And she really has this deep ideological belief that to pretend to be somebody that she's not is not real freedom. And so mm. having a fake ID is irrelevant to her because it still feels like hiding. And as you've mentioned, the the ultimate conclusion of that is that Jen goes to this rally and she's killed along with all of these other shadow children. And I thought that the way this book ended was really, really great. Now, I read a lot of books for the podcast uh, and I read a lot of books for the podcast while trying to juggle like a normal adult reading life because I, I don't typically read YA in middle grade <laughs> outside of the podcast. And I can honestly say that this is probably the first book I've ever read for the show where I have finished the first book in a series and I have been like, I would gladly pick up the next book even if I weren't planning to record an episode about it. Like it was such a great 
setup for book two. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. I had the same thought, Allie, because I finished it um, this morning and I was like, I need to read the next book, even though my deadline for my current work <laughs> is in two weeks. Like, I just need to read this book. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have something's come up. <laughs> yes. Emergency of must need to know what happens next. Yeah. So basically, to summarize what happens next, Luke has this conversation with Jen's dad, who explains what's happened at the president's house. And he also lets Luke know that Luke is likely now under investigation because Luke has been in this chat room that's now available to the government, like the government has found this chat room. And so if Luke doesn't leave quickly, he could be in danger as well. But because Jen's dad works for the government, he could actually set Luke up with a fake ID that corresponds to a dead child, which is like very dark and creepy. But basically, Luke is going to assume the identity of another 12-year-old who's passed away. And they're going to have this whole backstory where Luke, under another name, is going off to a boarding school. And Luke really like is scared of this idea at first. He's like, maybe I should just stay home and hide. But he then has a moment of reckoning where he realizes like, maybe I can make a difference. Like, Maybe it's not just in planning these big rallies and being a radical activist that I can make a difference, but maybe if I go out into the world under this new name, first of all, I'll save my family a lot of trouble, but also maybe I can like connect with other third children like me and try to figure out a different way to affect change in the world. And so that is the route he decides to take. And I'm like, I want to go to boarding school with him. I want to see what's going to happen. I was totally hooked. Yeah. I was too. I have already requested it in my library, actually. Amazing. I just, I really loved how it spoke on the different ways that we can hold our activist spirit without being that sort of brazen, loud energy, especially in the aftermath of coming down from the pandemic and a lot of hate crimes and even the current climate in Gaza and uh, and Palestine. Palestinians, right? Like the sense of freedom is is so novel for a lot of people now, right? The sense of like, you can do what you want with your own life. Like that's a concept that unfortunately a lot of this world doesn't have as there are prisoners and hostages taken everywhere. But there's also this other narrative of like us choosing joy is like a silent way to fight back where we don't feel defeated, where we keep sort of trucking along and not not always having to speak out loudly, though there are moments for that. But to take a step back and be like, I can have resilience and I can do things behind the scenes. And that's also a way of fighting back. And that's also a way of being an activist. And he and Luke sort of goes into that monologue, right, with himself. He says, like, you know, I could have more, pa- I'm more patient than Jen. I can work harder in and quieter than Jen because I'm not as, like, driven by this immediate need to be known. So I really liked how the book sort of framed a different way of being an activist. Yeah, I I agree. I think it showed that there's a need for all different types in movements. And Luke is coming to this from a completely different like temperament, personality type, completely different family background. And he's going to be able to offer something that Jen wasn't able to and maybe wouldn't have been able to even if she hadn't found herself 
in such a terrible situation at this rally. I did want to mention two other minor points before we start to wrap up. Smaller things that I just kind of liked that didn't necessarily fit into some of the other bigger conversations we were having. I loved that there was this sort of light reference to the importance of becoming a critical consumer of information. When Luke and Jen become friends, Jen sort of hands over all of these books to Luke and is like, learn something about the government. And and I even bought into some of it. I was like, yes, like this is all correct. Like I'm sure that whatever Jen is giving Luke is right. And then at the end, uh, Jen's dad explains like both of these sides that Jen is representing to you are in it for themselves. This is propaganda. And so I, I think even more so now when we have access to so much information, it was it was interesting to think about how a kid might take pieces of this and be like, oh, yeah, like I don't have to take everything at face value. I should learn how to be a critical consumer of information. So I liked that. And then I also liked that there was not this immediate like love interest between Luke and Jen because I feel like in the 90s that would have been really easy and really common where you know like Luke has never met a girl before and look it's Jen and so they're going to not only become friends but he's going to have a crush on her and that was just like not even not even a thing thought Mm -hmm. of no not a thing at all there was no tension if anything they had this like weird sibling tension not sexual tension, not crush tension, like none of that. Uh, and I was so relieved because I was like, oh no, are we going to like have like an awkward, like, oh no, like lover's quarrel. Like I've lost my crush. That didn't happen. And now he must fight for other children because of the love of his life. Exactly. I was so relieved that we didn't have to deal with that. Yeah, that's that's true. I did think about that too. A lot of um, another writer mom friend and I talked about this how she was like you know my kid is slower to romance and she's 14 and has never been interested in a boy and she was like but it's so hard to find books that are age appropriate for her without having that aspect of love and her daughter has complained to her like why does everyone fall in love like is something wrong with me Mm. and she was like I want more books out there where there could be these friendships without all of these questions well this would be a good one (laughs) yeah I also you know what you're saying about the critical consumer as as you also approach parenthood I feel like that's such a thing too like there's so much information on how to parent and the types of parenting there's you know how our parents parented us there's gentle parenting conscious parenting like being a disciplined parent, timeout parenting, no timeout parenting, right? Like there's like a trillion ways to be a mom. And I've learned through the meager two years I've been a mom that you sort of have to go through the motions and pick a path for yourself. Um, And in a way, it does feel like all different types of propaganda because the gentle parent will give you the million reasons why you shouldn't be a strict, overly disciplined parent and how your kid will turn out X, Y, Z, and unable to regulate their emotions if you just tell them how to feel and tell them what not to do, Mm -hmm. right? And the disciplined parent will tell you all the reasons you shouldn't be a gentle parent, and how if you gentle parent, your kids will turn out like too soft and unable to take no for an answer, blah, 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 right? Like, yeah, it it really reminded me of that, of of all things, probably because I am in the thick of, of toddler parenthood. 
I bet. But yeah, it was. It, I did think about that a lot. How the, how the dad was like, yeah, like both sides have a little bit of truth, but both sides, none of it is fully true. And it's propaganda on both ends. Um, and people will feed you information to make it seem like it's true and relevant, but it really just comes down to how you receive it. Yeah. And I think that that exists at every level. I agree with you that it's absolutely present in social media with parenting. Like the algorithms are fully on to me. And <laughs> all that I get now is like ads about different, I don't know, parenting related things. And at a certain point, I, I found that I just have to tune it out. But then bigger scale, like we are in the middle of so many massive geopolitical events that I will not even get into. But like, I just, I think that all of us need to continue to be good consumers of information mm-hmm. so that we can be educated and form our own opinions outside of these like tiny little squares that pop up on our phone screens and then can be so easily shared. Like mm-hmm. this book has so much relevance in 2023 in so many different ways. And it, it, that kind of made me sad though, like a yeah. dystopian book having relevance in, yeah. in our very real world was, was a little bit disappointing, you know? Yeah. It's freaky. Yeah, it really is. But it was it was filled with really good and and powerful reminders, I think, uh, despite sort of the dark, dark bits of a middle school book. Yeah, I feel like we've done a good job of kind of explaining the way that you experience this book differently now versus when you were a kid. So I'll, I'll skip the part where I ask you that question, because I think it's pretty obvious that like it felt darker. We were less focused on the individual characters and more focused on like, why is this world so crazy and scary? But I, for one, am so glad that you chose this book because like I said, it's something that's been requested many times over the years Mm. and I didn't know anything about it. I was a little bit put off by it just because I didn't, I didn't know anything. And like the synopsis is of course dark. And I was like, Ugh, do I want to read another one of these books when life is already so dark? Mm -hmm. But I just thought this was a really well done middle grade novel. I can see why kids loved it. I can see why it won a ton of awards. It's been taught in schools over the years, which is interesting to think about. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm so glad we got to talk about it. So thank you for choosing it. Thank you so much. I was so excited to reread this book. It's been a childhood favorite and I couldn't remember why it was a favorite, but now I, now I was reminded. So thank you. Other than Among the Hidden, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? We're approaching the holidays. People are probably going to have more time to read. What should they add to their TBRs? I just finished a book. It's a cozy mystery book which is a genre I only learned about somewhat recently. And it's called Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers. And Jessie's a good friend of mine. Uh, and it was her latest, or no, now she, she's come up with a novel already in that point. But it's her latest sort of cozy, humorous mystery book. And I think it's perfect for the holidays because I feel like a lot of adults are always grappling with like, family dynamics and probably their own parents and in-laws and siblings right it's like all of these things and it's one of those books that sort of you escape into this wild world with a lot of suspension of disbeliefs and it's very heartwarming it's like a big hug but a little friendly playful hit on the head as well I just talked to Jesse this morning Jesse was my morning interview oh my god no way yeah and when this episode drops Jesse will have been on last week so <laughs> that feels appropriate <laughs> that is so funny yeah and I'm also in the middle of reading it's a girl I've been hearing a lot about that uh by yeah Jean Kelly 
Fraser. I'm not sure I'm I'm saying that last name right, but in the midst of writing my second YA book, I try to read books that are similarly in the same tone. Yeah. So that's been that's been what I'm working on, and it's it's a really really quick read. It's a very fast read. I believe that the author is a screenwriter, and so it was sort of written in that in that voice, like written as if to be a movie, and so it, it flows very nicely. So it's been a it's been a good quick read, and I would recommend it. Great. Well, I will include links to both of those books in the show notes for this episode. And now we get to talk about your work, Claire. I'm so excited to hear more about I Guess I Live Here Now. And anything else you want to talk about? Tell me tell me all the things about your work. Uh, sure. Well, my book came out a year and a half ago now. And it's it's been a really great journey. I think it's been really such a joy to hear from readers. And, you know, as a writer, you write to just hopefully get readers to understand themselves and to to let readers know that you see them. And I think that's sort of the greatest purpose of a writer is, is to let readers know that they're never alone in the things that they go through. So it's been really encouraging. And I think that's the best part for me when a, when a reader says like, oh, your book is like one of my favorite books. There's nothing quite like that. Uh, so that's been sort of the high for me. I think as I work on my second novel, I've been learning a lot about craft and what works best for me and and what it really means to fall into the world of my character. So I guess for context, my my book is about a New York teenager who has grown up in New York her whole life, right? She's a classic New Yorker nowhere girl. And her parents, who by heritage are Korean, um, and she is Korean, they force her to move to Korea. And even though she looks Korean, she's very, very much not in a way, right? She's never lived there. She's never spent more than a fraction of her her days there. And so it's this jarring culture shift with a culture that she feels she's supposed to know, but she has no idea what it's like to be Korean. So it's a reconciliation of of the face that she's born with, with the culture she's foreign from. And it's a little bit of a reverse story for me. I grew up in Korea. So it's Korea is definitely more my home to me than America has been. But when I first came to the States for a university, I was just sort of in shell shock for probably years. People had expectations of me to understand Western culture um, simply because I was attending NYU and I speak the language fluently, but I had never really truly lived here. And so that it was sort of my way of processing my own cultural reconciliation and and feeling like, yeah, I, I have grown up in Korea, but I also never went to a Korean school. I never really was fully immersed in Korean culture the same way a true Korean local was because I went to an international school. And then when I came to the States, I felt so distant from the culture here in America and sort of the celebrities, the pop culture, the trends, all of that, the fashion even from big to small or small to big things, it felt very off to me. So it was sort of my way of just writing that into a novel. Well, I am so excited for our listeners to get their hands on your book. And also I would encourage them to follow you on social media. I'll include links to it on my feeds this week because I'm having so much fun following your journey with revising book <laughs> two. And it's also a great way to, of course, stay on top of when book two will be available for pre-order, which we obviously love. We love pre-orders. So everybody stay on top of yes, what Claire do. is doing with book two and pre-order that book. Um, it's been a lot of fun to watch that journey. And it's been so much fun chatting with you today. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Love, love discussing all things books. <laughs> yes, same. Thanks. 
SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.